Well, um, I have, at the moment, I have an office at home, and there are some challenges about having an office at home. Um, you know, I, I say an office, it's kind of, it's, it's the box room, it's big enough for a little desk, and it's not really big enough to have the door um, closed all the time. So if there are kids around, sometimes things can get a bit messy, as you might imagine. I mean, one of the, the things that really gets frustrating, and is a little bit of a joy, is when I'm on a Skype call with someone. You know, maybe I'll, I'll be talking with someone from Acts 29 or a, or a church planter somewhere else, or I'll be chatting with a friend somewhere who, and, and praying with someone for, for encouragement. And then um, my, one of my sons will poke their head around the door and they'll see a face on the screen. They don't even know who it is, but they run over to the screen and say, who is it? Hello, hello, hello. And they want to see their face on the screen and wave. And then Noah will hear the, the commotion and he'll run in as well. And he'll want to get his face in the screen. And then, you know, if things go really, really crazy, then Emily will hear and then you'll have Emily and Joseph. Josephine, you'll have, you'll have a, a, a face, a, 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 sort of like a, a Skype photobomb of faces on this conversation. I just want to talk, you know, and I push them all out the door and then I, then I, then I get on with it. It's a bit of a, it's, but, but as, I'm, as I was reading this, I kind of had that kind of picture in my mind. Because you've got this, this Paul has is, is, uh, been scribing the letter to somebody else, and he, but, but here he, he's grabbed the pen for himself and he wants to write these words in his own hands, we're told at the end. And uh, he just wants to say hi, send his personal greetings to, to these people that he's writing this letter to. And then it looks like everyone wants to get on on it. Oh, say hi from me, say hi from me, and don't forget me, S- say hi from me. And everyone wants to get in. But, but, the, but the difference is between a Skype conversation um, at my house and this letter is that this is organized, Holy Spirit created chaos. Okay, I don't think it really is chaos. I think there is some wonderful things in here for us to learn that the Holy Spirit has put there for a reason. See, often these are the kinds of things that we might be tempted to skip over or ignore as we read the Bible. You know, like the genealogies in the Old Testament? We kind of think, well, we know, we, we know someone was born to someone and we just kind of skip over whole chapters at a time sometimes. But it's, it's often when we take time and just look at those things again and again and again, we can see wonderful nuggets of gold that we would miss completely if we skipped over them. So it's my job to, to glean the gold out of this wonderful ending to a letter that Paul has written. Um, yeah, so, so just as a, by way of reminder of what's going on here in Colossians, I just want to go three quick headings just to kind of pop up. Um, so Paul has been wanting to proclaim the, the mystery of the gospel. I mean, that, that's, that's what this letter is really all about, the mystery of the gospel. Um, the Colossians have had people come in to try and teach them mysteries of, of secret things that, that will te- take them on in different ways. And Paul is saying, no, you've got a mystery already, a wonderful mystery that's been revealed. And it's all about Jesus. And it starts with this. In, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we're told, for all things have been created through him and for him. That's Jesus. Jesus is over everything. He created everything. Jesus is the one that holds the universe together. He created it all, and it all exists for his glory. We exist for his glory. That's the start of this mystery. We were created by him for his glory, and we're invited into that relationship with him. And we're told that this wonderful God who created everything and sustains everything died for our sins when we were his enemies so that we could move from the kingdom of darkness and be brought into the kingdom of life, uh, light so we can be given an absolutely new identity. So we have this wonderful Jesus who is over everything and over us. 
Um, but then we're told in, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, that we are in union with him. Now, we talked about union with Christ. I encourage you to go back and listen to that again if, if, if you've forgotten about this or you've missed it. But in, in Colossians 1, 3, verse 1, it says this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And the emphasis there is if you're a believer in Christ, that's where you are. You are united with the one who created all things. You you are joined to him in a very real way. We are connected, we we, we are one with Christ in this awesome thing. That means everything that belongs to him belongs to us in him. Everything that he deserves that we don't deserve, we have in him. That's massive. So that's another part of this wonderful mystery. And then the other thing that Paul goes on to explain is that because we all have union with Christ... We are united by him. When we come to faith in Jesus, we don't come on our own. We come and we join in with everybody else who is in union with him. That makes sense, doesn't it? If I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, then we're in Christ. Yeah? We're united. In, 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 in chapter 3, um, I think it's verse, verse 11, might be 10, it says, Here, in this new community, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, scythe, and slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. See, in this community that God is creating through this mysterious gospel, this wonderful gospel, there there is absolute unity and a wonderful unity that only this message can create. And, and what's interesting is, is as, as we looked at last week, is that, that this message is to be proclaimed to all the world. But what's interesting is it's, this message creates a kind of community. And we'll look a bit more about that later on. But, it, all, but it, also, it is also sent by that community. So God creates a community, the church, and by, because they hear the gospel. And that church is God's mission strategy to take that gospel to the nations. The gospel creates a community and then that community is then sent out to proclaim that gospel to bring more people into that church who would then go out and tell more people. The gospel is to be told again and again and again to create this community and to send it out. And Paul says, and we read this um, this last week, he says, pray for us too that God may open the door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So that Paul wanted to go do it, but then we're told to be involved in that as well. In verse 6, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So this message is this wonderful mystery of union with Christ and union together. Um, is, is, the, is the message that creates a community to be sent to proclaim that message. But what's interesting, though, is, is we get to the end of this really well-constructed letter of Paul, and then we get this, these, these last few bits that, that seem a little chaotic compared to the structure of the rest of his letter. But actually, what's fantastic is we get a glimpse, of, of a real-life glimpse of what this church looked like in the first century. And there are things that we can learn and model in our own church life. And the four things that we're going to look at this evening are these. The church is a diverse, serving, there's two, (laughs) refining and sacrificial community. The church is a diverse, serving, refining and sacrificial community. 
So let's look at the first one of those. The church is a diverse community. You know, this passage helps us to see two radical forms of diversity that, that were challenging then back in the first century and are challenging still today. The church was racially diverse and it was socially diverse. It was radically diverse. You see, as you go through the list, you'll have probably realized that there are a few different sets of people. Starts with a list of Jews. Um, In verse 7, we've got um, Tychicus, uh, his fellow worker with Paul. Then we've got Omnitius in verse 9. We'll look at him in a bit more detail a little later. Then we've got Aristarchus uh, and Mark and Justus, who's also called Jesus, whose name was probably changed because that would be rather confusing when you're preaching a gospel about Jesus. Um, so that he's in verse 11. And then, and then in verse 11, we're told this. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God. They have proved a comfort to me. So they were Jewish co-workers. And then he gives a second list of Gentiles. Epaphras in verse 12. Luke, the doctor. Um, Demas and um, Justice. I've got Justice on my list twice. There we go. Anyway, it's confusing. Um, <laughs> the question that's worth asking here at this point is... Why does he make the distinction? Now, just to, we, we looked at that verse in chapter 3, didn't we, where, where we're told that there is no more Jew and Gentile, no slave or free and all that. Well, why does, why does Paul make great emphasis of giving a list of Jews and a list of Gentiles? Is he trying to show us a distinction between the two? And no, I don't think that's true. I think what he's doing is he's, by showing us two lists, he's actually trying to demonstrate that there are no distinctions practically in their community. Look, for example, at verse 7. Tychicus is the Jew, and he is described in verse 7 as a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Then you have Epaphras, the Gentile. In verse 12 and 14, he's also described as a servant of the Lord. And then Paul goes on to stress his faithfulness. They may both have different ethnic backgrounds, but they, have, and they both love and serve the same Lord and the same church. There is no distinction. They are both brothers, fellow ministers of the gospel, and they are serving to proclaim this mystery of the gospel to the whole world. There is no distinction. They are co-workers together. Now, I think sometimes, I mean, we may know that there was massive distinctions between the Jews and Gentiles in the first century, um, but I, I think in our age, sometimes we can just forget just how big that was. I mean, the Jews um, weren't allowed to eat with Gentiles because Gentiles were considered unclean, and, and Jews were not particularly loved by people either. There was, this, there was this real animosity between the Jewish people and many others. And the best modeling, modern example I can think of is um, the sort of the division we see in the world um, in, in Israel today. We see a massive division between the Palestinians and the Jews, don't we? We see this enormous great big division with a great big wall dividing these, t- these two peoples. They do mingle in some areas, but, but it's really, really tense. And for years, governments have been trying their best to find a way of, of bringing peace. And no matter how hard they try, how, much, how many millions they throw at it, how many counselors they send, how many negotiators they send, again and again and again, those peace, that the peace fails, and it just cannot be found. But recently, when I was reading about the church in, in Israel, I came across this quote. And it's from a lady called Shadika um, Quibti, I can't pronounce that surname, 
Okay, there we go. You can probably tell me how to pronounce that later on. But she's a Palestinian Christian work, working for reconciliation between the Arabs and the Jewish community in Israel. And she says this. As a Palestinian, it's very difficult to reach my enemy. But as a Christian Palestinian, I have the ability to do that. Because Jesus gives me the eyes to see them as he sees me. Jesus gives me the confidence to go against my society. He gives me the power to embrace them. Today, when I meet Israeli Messianic believers, that's Jewish Christians, I feel close. I feel comfortable. And most importantly, I feel I am home. Because in the Messiah, there is room for all of us. He calls us to be one family. Understanding the gospel transformed her life. She grew up hating Jews. And now, because of Jesus, she worships together on a regular basis with Jewish believers in Jesus. When the gospel is at the core of a Christian community, racial divisions evaporate. They go. And this, in this part of the world where peace is so fleeting and so precious and so hard to find, the gospel is bringing people together that nothing else can bring together. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, we, we, we live in a world where there is a word that is particularly challenging. We hear it quite often in the media. It's the word xenophobia. You know that word, xenophobia? Uh, it should come on the screen behind me. That's, that's actually a, a Greek word. You won't find it in the Bible, but there is a word closely related to it in the New Testament that is repeated over and over again in the New Testament, and it's this word. Filio, filio, xenia. Filio, xenia. Now, can anyone guess what that word means? I don't want to translate it, and I death probably can. This word means loving the stranger. Xenophobia literally means fearing the stranger. Philozenia means loving the stranger. See, that's the difference between, between what happens in the world and what should be happening in the church. We see xenophobia all around us. We even see in some communities masquerading as Christians, people walking through diverse communities with white crosses, protect, pretending to be Christians. But in fact, they're xenophobic. But in a true Christian community, will be filled with love for the stranger of people of diverse communities. It'll be marked, a Christian community will be marked by filiozenia, not xenophobia. But it's not just racial diversity we see in this passage. We also see in chapter 4 social diversity. Did you notice that name, Omniscius? Um, the sharp ones amongst you will have recognized that that name is mentioned elsewhere. He's from the book of Philemon, also probably written around a similar, the same sort of time as this letter. And he is a runaway slave from Colossae. And he ran away from his, slave, from his master's house, and he probably stole some money as he did it, and he ran away to Rome, trying to gain freedom, got him, probably got himself in a bit of trouble, and ended up in a cell with Paul, where he hears the gospel, becomes a Christian, and then Paul writes this wonderful letter and sends him back to Philemon, his master. And um, Paul says, he is now a brother. You lost a servant, but now you've gained a brother. So we have a slave here. 
but he's not described as a slave in this passage. In verse 9, we're told he is our faithful and dear brother. You know, Paul is a well-respected religious leader. He's, he's, a, he's a teacher that's traveled the world, gathers crowds. Everyone listens to Paul. He's of the highest kind of standard you can imagine. But Paul says, I'm not above Omniscius. I am his fellow brother. He is my brother, and he's faithful. There is no class divide in the church. No titles that, that put people over one another, just equal brotherly love. No distinctions. People are equally valued, equally worthy of respect and dignity. Socially and economic backgrounds don't matter in a church life where the gospel has taken hold. You know, it's hard. We love this, don't we? We love the idea of Philozenia, and we, we love the idea of no class divisions and, and, and people of all different backgrounds getting on in church, but we do find this difficult. Even if we don't think we do, we do. I mean, think, who do we normally gravitate to in church? We gravitate to people who are like us, people who are a similar age, maybe similar gender, similar states of life, um, with the same number of children as us, they're at the same kind of age, they like the same kind of music, they go to the same kind of concerts as we do, they love eating the same kind of food, they like listening to the same kind of music. We just find it easy and we gravitate towards those people. But this letter reminds us and challenges us that's not what the gospel looks like. The gospel is gathering a diverse people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what we're going to look like in glory. We'll be eating all kinds of different food, worshipping in different styles, we'll be wearing different kinds of clothes. And the church is supposed to be a picture of that now. You know, one way in which many churches have grown really quickly in different parts of the world is the homogeneous principle. Have you heard of that? This idea that, look, if we just focus on people that are, that are close enough alike, we can grow a church really quickly. And, and, and in some ways, it's very true. That does tend to happen. If, 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 if everybody likes the same kind of music, if everyone's roughly the same kind of age, you can gather a crowd really quickly. But the warning of, of, of letters like this is that actually, if, if that's what your church ends up looking like, then it doesn't really end up looking like the church. Because the church is supposed to be diverse. This morning I, I was at church, I, I chatted to a Swede. Okay, that's my wife, but I'll still hold that one up there. I chatted to a Norwegian. I chatted to a Nigerian. I chatted to a, a Korean. I chatted to people from all over the world. And we want to continually welcome people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different situations in life, and gather them into our community. And that will be painful at times. It might mean having different snacks, in, in East London, um, after a church, I, I preached in a Nigerian church every now and again. And instead of having tea and biscuits after the service, we had chicken wings. And we had coffee with condensed milk. But I loved spending time with that church, with those people. They were so welcoming. Maybe we need a few more chicken wings in our congregation. So let me challenge you. Who's the strangest person on your street? Who's the person that's most different from you? The person you think you would have no chance of having a decent conversation with? Is it someone wearing a burqa? Is it, I, I don't know, who, who is it? Let me encourage you to, to, to trust that this gospel can bring people from all different communities together and go and embrace them.
eat different foods, watch different movies, listen to different music, and model the gospel in action. So that's the first point. The church is a diverse community. The other ones aren't as long. The second point is this. The church is a serving community. Notice how Paul talks about his friends. So Tychicus, um, in verse 7, is a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. Then you've got Epaphras in verse 12, who's one of you, and he's also a servant of Jesus. Um, And servant is the same word that is used to, to say slave. So basically what they're saying is, we are slaves of Christ. They are slaves of Christ. But remember, they're fellow slaves of Christ. Paul is saying, that's what I am too. I am a slave of Jesus. They're servants of Jesus. You see, there is only one master in the church, and it isn't me, and it isn't Daph. It's Jesus. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the Lord. And I wonder how many issues in church life would instantly be done away with if we just understood this every day. That I am just a servant of Jesus serving his people. Nothing more. I wonder what would happen if we fought that way. Yeah, okay, I have a title in the church. That doesn't make me better than anyone. In fact, what that means is that I, as a leader in the church, is I am a a lead servant in the church. And that's all a pastor is, a lead servant. And there's nothing wrong with being a servant. We shouldn't look down on people that are servants. I mean, that's what we all are. And isn't that what Jesus is? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus came and he washed his disciples' feet. And that was to be the model of our lives. We're a serving community. And we also see that this community is a serving community that uses amazingly diverse range of gifts. You see, you've got Paul, he's writing his deep theological letters. But they wouldn't do anyone any good if, if, uh, if Tychicus didn't deliver it. You know, if, if he was, he would, Paul was locked away, he couldn't deliver it. So Tychicus hands this letter to, to the Colossians. Then you've got Epaphras. He's the one who took the gospel in the first place to, to, Colossia, to Colossae. He was a preacher. He was a servant of the people. And then you've got Luke. You know Luke? Luke is the guy who kept records. He was a historian as well as a doctor. And he gave us the book of Luke and the book of Acts, which chronicles the, the, the ministry of Paul and the other apostles. And then you've got Nympha, a little later on, who uses her house for the church. There was a church that met in her house. She had space, so she used it to serve the church. They all had diverse ways of serving in the community of God. And without all of them, in exactly the right place, in exactly the right time, the church would have been weaker. And that's what we have here. All of you, every single one of you, if you're a part of this church family, your gifts are needed. We're a team, a diverse team of people with diverse gifts. I'm useless with numbers. Some of you are fantastic with numbers. I'm useless with all kinds of things. I can do some things quite well, but that's why we need a community of people. That's why we need this diverse community. A great example of this coming up in just a few weeks is, is the big day out, where we've got 180 volunteers, is it, roughly? Around 180 volunteers in the church. And because we have 180 volunteers, some will be 
throwing coconuts, some will be painting faces, some will be making tea, some will be making cakes, some will be talking to people about Jesus when they get the opportunity, some will be, will be um, um, reading Bible stories. All kinds of things will be going on. Some will be running around with cameras. But because everyone is doing a different thing and working together and serving together, in using their diverse range of gifts, we as a church will, will God willing, be able to, to, to share God's love with, with maybe thousands of people that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do it. And that day, that one day, is just a picture of what church life is supposed to be like. That's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? So where are you using your diverse range of gifts? There's countless ways in which you can serve in the church. If you want to know where you could serve tomorrow, have a chat to Dave afterwards. I'm sure he'd love to tell you. One area in which we're looking for volunteers at the moment is, someone, is people to actually volunteer on a Sunday evening to serve tea and coffee. It might not sound like a really important ministry, but remember, we're all servants, and it is really important. That hubbub afterwards as we get the chance to talk to one another and talk about the word that we've just heard is vital and important in church life. So if you, are, if you have free time after the service on a Sunday, please volunteer to do that. And there are plenty of other things you can do. Sharing the gospel is a team effort. And God has created a diverse community with a diverse range of gifts to take that message to the world. Thirdly, the church is a refining community. We've got three characters in this um, story that are really interesting. The first one is, I'm going to point out, is Demas. You see him next to Luke? Demas. Demas is a warning to us. You see, Paul didn't know when he wrote this letter, but actually one day soon, Demas was going to abandon him. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We're not told how or why he left, but the language used isn't just the language of him going back home. The language is that he left the gospel and left the church. Maybe he was afraid to go with Paul to his death. We don't know. But he did fall away. So Demas is a warning to all of us that maybe we seem like we're heading in the right direction now, but it's possible that we could lose our way and fall. And you might say, well, aren't believers always saved? You know, I absolutely believe that. Well, once you're a Christian, Jesus holds on to you. But I'm not naive. I have seen men and women who have loved, seemed to, to know Jesus and love the gospel for years and faith, who've led people to Christ, who have walked away from the church and are in the world acting as if they never knew Jesus in the first place. That happens. And Demas is a warning to all of us. But also we have an encouragement in Mark. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. In Acts chapter 13, Mark was on Paul's first missionary trip, and he too abandoned Paul. He left. It was Paul, Barnabas, and Mark, and Mark, ups and scarpers. And we're not told why or how it happened, but we are told that Paul was rather upset. Because in Acts chapter 15, when Mark wants to get back involved in the ministry, Barnabas is, is, is keen to give his cousin a second chance, but Paul says, absolutely not. And they part ways. Barnabas and Mark go off in one direction, and Paul goes off in the other. But then we see Mark, 
here again with Paul, faithfully serving in the gospel. Mark, who once abandoned, came back. So there is hope for us. This is an encouragement that people who fall can be restored back into the community. Because Jesus is a forgiving Lord and he is a restoring Lord. The question is, how? How is that going to happen? And the third person I want us to to look at is Archippus at the end in verse 17. See that? Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. Archippus, it looks like he needed a good kick up the rear. We're not told exactly what was going on again, but it does seem that he was given a ministry by Jesus, and, and Paul is saying, look, get on with it. Do that job. Make sure you see it through. Don't walk away. And I think that's a great little verse to hear because we all need a good kick up the rear from time to time when we forget the importance of the ministry we've been called to, forget the goal in which the church is all about. We need a community of people around us that we're accountable to, that can challenge us and push us in the right direction when we're heading in the wrong direction. We need accountability in leadership. Not gung-ho leaders that can go off and do whatever they want, but that are held to account by the elders and by the rest of the church. And that's one of the reasons we have church membership. It's not one of the popular reasons we have church membership, but it's an important one. We have church membership because by becoming a member in the church, you're saying, look, I want to be held accountable by this community. That That I stay on track with the Lord and I don't go off. And you give the church permission to challenge you when you're heading in the wrong direction so that you can be more like Mark because let's face it, we're all more like Mark than Demas. We don't want to end up like Demas. We want to be restored. So the church is supposed to be a refining community where we're challenged and encouraged to grow. But lastly, the church is a sacrificial community. There's two ways that this came, came out to me as I was reading this. The first one is the description that Epaphras is given. It says in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He always is wrestling for you in prayer, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is hardworking for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. I think this guy must have been one of the best people in that church. He was the one that brought the gospel there in the first place. And he was the one, he was like the main church leader. And what have they done? They've sent him off to go and serve with Paul. So there's a challenge in here to say, what what should a a church that's driven by the mystery of the gospel be like? It should be a church that's willing to send its best people to take that gospel elsewhere. That's a great sacrifice. And we've had some experience of that in our last church plan as we sent people out and we wondered how on earth are we going to survive without them? And then God sends more people to us. And God has been incredibly faithful to us. But even if he didn't send those people, it would have still have been right to take that risk and to send our best away. And we need to do that in the future. It's a sacrifice, but they did it. And then the other way is in the very last verse. Verse 18, Paul says again, 
Paul, I write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. It's like he wants to remind them right at the end. He doesn't sound like a prisoner too much as he's writing this letter. He sounds like a free man because he is a free man in the gospel. You can chain Paul up, but you can't chain his soul or his spirit. But he wants to remind them as he gets to the end, I'm in chains. Now, why is he doing that? Is he doing that because he wants them to send him more money? No, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul is reminding them of the great costly sacrifice there is to following Jesus in this world. May end up in prison. I mean, look at um, Aristarchus in verse 10. It says, my fellow prisoner sends you his greetings. Being with Paul, lining yourself with Paul, risks that you may end up in prison. That's what he's saying. Remember, there's, great, there's a great wonderful gospel to proclaim, but it will have consequences. That might sound like a bit over the top to us nowadays. I mean, not in England. People aren't going to end up in prison in England, are they? I mean, that sounds a bit crazy, doesn't it? Well, maybe just this week, we've had a little bit of a glimpse, a little bit of a warning of, of where we may be headed in the future. When Tim Farron gave his resignation speech, he said how it was impossible to be a leader of a political party and an evangelical Christian. It was obvious that he gave something up that he loved because he was pressured to do so because of his faith. More and more of us may find this to be true in coming years. It may cost us losing our jobs. Um, maybe, maybe cost us losing our charity status as a church, losing 25% of our income, who knows? Maybe it might, might cost us losing our children. Maybe one day we might end up in chains. I mean, of course, it, it may not happen in our generation. We, we may have freedom to preach the gospel for many more years. But we shouldn't be surprised if that gospel is taken, if that freedom is taken away. Because Paul says, remember my chains. And he's saying, well, even if the chains come, don't stop being about the gospel. Keep the gospel because with it, you know, there may be great cost, but it's worth it. But how are we going to continue this? Well, the last four words give us great strength. He says, grace be with you. Your grace is the undeserved, perfect love of God given through Jesus on all his people. Undeserved. And it's given to us all freely. And it's the one thing that separates Christianity from every other religion where God says, I will love you regardless of what you're like, and I will make you holy, and I will join you into my family through Jesus because I love you. Because I choose to love you, not because you deserve it. And that means it can never be taken away. Grace is undeserved love that can only be found in Christ. And when you've experienced that love found in the gospel that says you are more sinful than you would ever know, but you are more loved than you could ever imagine, you find hope. And when you've experienced what it's like to be part of a community that, that, is, that, that God is creating that's working towards this perfect community in glory, when you've experienced what it means to feel this love in community, you realize that there's nothing in this world that's worth sacrificing that for. So let me finish by just reciting what we said so far. The church is a diverse, 
sacrificial, serving, um, and refining community. But I want to end with this quote from Tim Farron. And maybe we need to be reminded of the things that are really important in our lives that we're holding on to just a little bit too tightly, that we must be willing to let go for the sake of the gospel. Let me read this. I joined our party when I was 16. It's in my blood. I love our history, our people, and I thoroughly love my party. Imagine how proud I am to lead this party, and then imagine what it would, what it would lead me to voluntarily relinquish that honor. In the words of Isaac Watts, I would, it would have to be something so amazing, so divine, it demands my heart, my life, my all. Have you experienced that love? Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for this community. I thank you, Lord, for this community that is brought together by Christ. And I do pray, Lord, that as we continue to worship now, as we take communion, we would be joined together and reminded of just how close we are knitted together because of the blood of Christ. We thank you for what you are doing amongst us and what you are sending us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.